Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode. So what I'm about to give you is a lecture that I recently gave to the 1st Brigade, 101st Airborne Bastogne. Who? It's a lecture that I've been working on to answer a simple question. Why is urban warfare the hardest form of warfare? Why is it the most complex, the most difficult? It may seem simple, but not everybody thinks so. Well, enjoy the show. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. So why is urban warfare the hardest form of warfare? Some would argue that it's no harder than any other. Matter of fact, I've had to write articles on that some people believe that the urban terrain is just neutral. While it has unique features, whoever gets there first or whoever can use its features well will succeed the most. Some compare it to the jungle. The jungle is hard, right? My first duty station was Panama in 1990s. Uh, and, and I can tell you as an infantryman, it was really hard. So much so that the environment was a, would kill you as much as the enemy did. Everything would kill you in Panama. But no matter what, or even elevation. So along the India-Pakistan border, there's been war happening above 12,000 feet where your weapons freeze up and the bullets don't work the same. Um, you could argue in the Arctic where the environments are different. I still argue. I'm going to explain here in this podcast why I think, as somebody who studied this for a little while, urban warfare is the hardest place to fight on the planet. So, sometimes before I even get started in discussing why it's the hardest form of warfare, some people say, well, why, John, you have to tell me why I would even fight in urban. What's going to pull me in there? It makes no sense. Right? I, maybe I agree with you that it's the hardest, so I'm just going to not do it. Well, that aspect of avoid and bypass used to be in the army doctrine because why wouldn't you avoid and bypass urban warfare if you understand it's the hardest and you're trying not to do it well i mean war is a struggle a struggle between two enemies trying to impose their will on each other so if you know one person doesn't want to go somewhere then that's where you'll be no i mean you so i usually start off with the why of just showing that the urban area is the usually the objective, right? The history of war, the history of modern combat, whether it's right now happening in Ukraine, whether it was at the start of the battle, at the start of the war, there was one objective. It was Kiev. And then there were other objectives. There were cities. Cities are the strategic and operational objectives. They are where the military is going, as in capital cities, the seat of political power, if it's a, an objective is a regime change, like the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, getting to Kabul, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, getting to Baghdad, like the Russians attempting to invade Ukraine, getting to Kiev. And yes, I know historically there have been a few instances where armies have made it to capitals and did not win. I don't care. The urban objective is the objective. There are other reasons, of course, why urban is the present and the future. 
There are also operational objectives, as in the world is more urban, right? Urbanization, demographics. You've heard me talk about in the podcast, the world is over 50% urban. That happened back in 2008. Most developed countries are over 80% urban. And in some places of the world, you're just not going anywhere if you don't go through an urban area. Like the Pacific, you're not going to hit, you're not going to get into the theater without going through an urban. Most urban areas are littoral. So you're going to have to go through a littoral if you want an S-pod or an A-pod or somewhere to project power. And they also sit at strategic crossing points, as in urban areas pop up along riverways, ancient trade routes, on fortresses like in Susha in the Battle of Nagorno-Karabakh, why Susha was there. They pop up, civilizations pop up because of these thoroughfares. They are the the gates to countries. They are the trade routes. They are the logistical lines. You're going to have to fight in urban. So I try to go through these trends of war. They, they are objective trends of modern warfare. And even my friend Tony King with a great point that militaries just aren't as big as they used to be. They're not going to form these giant fronts in the open and try to attempt to kill each other. They're going to be sucked into the urban as the urban is the objective. And that's what we're seeing in the Ukraine today, even as it transfers into the eastern section of Donbass, which is much more open. What are we talking about? We're talking about cities, Severodonetsk, Luhansk, Donetsk. They are the objectives. Another point is that if you hold something in your mind, you think about a city or an, even an old battle, that city is not the same. Just the density of populated urban areas the elevation and the increased populations has changed if you hold some battle in your mind or some place i can guarantee you it has more people in it than it used to now i have to address what you think is when i you hear the term urban warfare so in order for us to come to a consensus that urban warfare is the hardest i have to talk you through okay what do you think about when i say urban warfare do you think of things like counterinsurgency in urban terrain like Iraq or other people have done in Algeria, Venezuela, Ireland, Palestine? Or do you think counterterrorism missions like the failed Munich operation, Mogadishu 1993, Black Hawk Down, Mumbai terrorist attack 2008? Or do you think a limited objective urban operation like American forces into Panama or in the Baghdad 2003, these are regime changes. Or Sadr City, like the battle that I was in, where it was simply to stop rockets from launching out of Sadr City, hitting the international green zones, so we put a wall around them. Or like the battles in of Israel and Gaza 2009, Gaza 2014, limited objective, stop rockets from launching or some other mission that require penetration into urban terrain or controlling it in some way. Or do you think of these other battles from World War II, like me and my friend Jason Giroux have written about, like the Battle of Ortona, or Aachen, or Seoul, or Manila, these major urban battles have happened in history. Way 1968, Mosul 2016, Marari 2017, Susha 2020, or now we have Kiev 2022, Mariupol. Severodonetsk, the, na- the, the list continues. Are those the battles that you hold in your mind when you talk about urban warfare?
And of course, you can go even larger battles that happened during World War II where million man army, million person populations inside the city, like the Battle of Stalingrad, the Siege of Leningrad, the Battle of Berlin. Um, if you go into other wars like the Battle of Bukovar, the Siege of Sierbo, the two battles in Grozny, uh, Mariupol 2022, are these high intensity, high destruction wars. So you, we have to come to a, a, an agreement along the spectrum of military operation. When I say urban warfare is the hardest, okay, of course it's hard depending on what range of military operation, like doing counterinsurgency in urban terrain is really hard. If you're talking about a 6 million people and you're trying to identify 1% of the population, but for the purpose of the discussion, I usually keep it to urban, large-scale combat operations in urban terrain, both offense and defense, mostly in a non-permissive environment, right? So we, the military, have these different classifications of urban terrain where you have permissive, as in there's, there's a very small force fighting you, but there's no host nation support, to non-permissive where it's absolutely every person could be possibly against you in an urban terrain. Great differences between, so whether it's non-permissive, semi-permissive, but it's not permissive, right? So if we're, let's talk, okay, let's narrow this down to peer competition in urban terrain. Let's do that. And then now let's talk about why do I say it's the hardest form of warfare to fight today. So number one, which is the easy one, since most people, there's these quotes on what you think about in urban warfare, you know, military guy thinks about buildings. Uh, I will say, you know, now I'll say if you, U.S. military, if you ask them about urban terrain, they start thinking about close quarters battle, right? Enter and clear rooms, battle drill six. Anyways, the number one reason why urban warfare is the hardest is the physical terrain. Some people go far as far to call it the great equalizer, right? Because it equalizes the, the superior military technology, especially if it's an attacker. So, right, that's one of the first things. It reduces superior technologies like intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, aerial assets, things that can see um, the dense urban terrain prevents that and strike capabilities, right? Because it's just harder in urban terrain to do that. But it also degrades other technologies in the urban terrain. It just, your systems just don't work the same, whether it's GPS or signals or weapons, as in weapons don't penetrate concrete like any other material on the planet. When the accuracy starts to become degraded and aerial aircrafts can't even work in urban terrain because the, some air, dense urban areas form urban canyons and it has the, it affects the, the actual flight of aircraft, which does impact close air support and things like that. The urban terrain also provides ready-made defensive features, unlike any other terrain on the planet, right? If I, if I was a defender moving into a, an area, I would have to spend a lot of time building defensive. Well, the urban terrain provides that defensive quality, provides un, you know, all the cover and concealment that I'd ever want, especially concealment. Every building, every apartment complex, something like that, I can hide and not be seen because most superior intelligence surveillance reconnaissance assets can't see through concrete and then cover. So depending on what type of building is made up of, 
Urban terrain provides cover from munitions, even aerial bombardments, depending on what type of building, if it has an underground space. So that really gets you to the urban terrain is a three-dimensional space by nature of both form and function, right? So there's surface, super surface, subterranean aspects of the urban terrain. Most people don't even think about the underground when they're thinking about urban warfare. They're like, oh, that's just a problem I'll face when I when I hit it. But now we're seeing mm, operations like Ukraine, like Kiev, that or Odessa, or Mariupol, they have these extensive underground complexes. So the actual operation achieving the mission, you have to consider the three-dimensional battlefield, unlike other types of terrain. Then the, the urban terrain, based on, again, the form and function, also canalizes and separates formations. So it limits what we want to do, which is maneuver, right? And it also limits both sides from massing formations. These are the the very qualities of an effective military, the ability to combine arms maneuver, right? To find penetration points and then mass the formation at the critical point. Well, just the nature of the urban terrain, the way it was built, it limits that ability to do that. And just as an example, I usually like to show of kind of how the physical terrain and the weapons don't work so much. There's a picture in our urban doctrine about the tank that can't elevate its gun to a certain elevation. So if you're in urban terrain and you get a higher than the tank, you're almost safe from it and you can fire down on top of it, which is a weak spot. Or the fact if you're below the tank as in in a basement and firing up, which is historical, the tank can't see you. And tanks no matter what you hear, are necessary in high-intensity urban combat. There's no replacement for that mobile protective firepower. And another example I like to give just on a, you know, an example of weapons, technologies, you know, not the right tool for the type of terrain because there's reasons for this. In July of 2003, there was an operation. I was actually in theater, but I knew about this operation, didn't learn about it till later. When Saddam Hussein's sons, Uday and Kuse, were found in a city, they were able to identify the building they were staying at. And then actually it was a second brigade, 101st, were attempting to get those two high value targets. And they were, you know, they were just a regular light infantry unit, which has tools at its as a you know, at its tools that it's armed with, even for urban terrain. And it had nothing that could penetrate the concrete of the building that these two guys were in. And they fired 10 tow anti-tank missiles at the building. They fired Mark 19 grenade launchers, 50 caliber uh, machine guns. They strafed it with helicopter fire. And the battle continued because they weren't having an effect inside the building. And it up, eventually it ended, but uh, 10 tow missiles, and I can't even figure the, the amounts, but... That's an anti-tank guided missile meant to create a small weapon. And, and to be honest, even in my own experiences, the first time my soldiers fired an AT4 at a at a mud wall and, and it only put a little, you know, not even not even the size of a baseball, but a small hole in the wall because that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to penetrate a small piece of armor and then punch a hole through it and bring flame into it, kill everybody inside of it. Not meant for urban train, but that's just an example. So if number one is the physical terrain, the three-dimensional aspects to it, the limiting, the great equalizer effect, um, 
Number two is the presence of civilians, right? We, the U.S. military, define urban terrain as three things. Man-made structures, the presence of civilians, the presence of populations, and the infrastructure to support that population. Urban terrain is not just a bunch of buildings. Matter of fact, historically, there have been very few battles, if any, where all the civilians have gotten out. Take for any battle, even the battles where we've spent months emptying the, the city out of civilians, like the second battle of Fallujah, there were still you know, 10%, 2%, 5% of the population left. And 5% of a population of 400,000 is still a lot of people, a lot of civilians, a lot of non-combatants. And there's just, there's just a little list in the, the Battle of Morari, but this, this, I'll get to assumptions, but there's always people, right? So in the urban terrain, there's a presence of civilians. Presence of civilians, and then that means you're going to go into that warfare, that into that fight with a pure competitor or any competitor already with limits on the use of force, right? Laws of, of war, law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law. On top of that, Historically, even in the most high-intensity fights that you can imagine, there was a rules of engagement imposed on those forces. And me and my friend Jason Drew have written many case studies showing, like in the Battle of Hawaii, in you know, multiple battles, and the one you used like the, to to just show as an example in the retaking of Manila in World War II, General MacArthur did not want the city destroyed because that's the nature of close fighting in urban terrain, taking it back. It gets very destructive. He did not want the city destroyed. He wanted the, the Philippine people protected, so he didn't allow the attacking forces to have much air support and couldn't fire certain types of rounds into the city. That's historical, right? You're always going to go on with the limitations, restricted fire lines, no fire areas. I mean, that's the nature of the laws of war, protected populations and protected places. And yes, protected places can lose their protection if they become military targets. But even then, right, schools, mosques, hospitals, like we've seen Russia, who doesn't care about the laws of war and commits war crimes as a form of war. If you're in a law-abiding military, you're going to go in with restrictions of the use of force. And even if a protected place is being used for military, there's still multiple additional layers of the the responsibility to care for non-combatants and civilians and protect them in execution of the warfare. So no matter what, you're going to go in constrained with the use of force, especially in modern warfare. And then because this person is the population, whether it's you tried to empty it, and there's been many battles where there's been attempts to get civilians out, like the Battle of Aachen in World War II, that where both the Americans and the Germans ordered the civilians to leave. I think it was four four rounds of evacuations and there were still thousands of civilians in there. And that's pretty historical. But even of the civilian population that's left, is it supportive or is it non-supportive and actually a part of a participant in the armed conflict? Like we we saw in Ukraine and in Kyiv where you know a 3 million population, about a million of them, stayed or or were required to stay and then they're handing out 20,000 AK47s and now you if you're the military attempting to get into that urban area every corner every window could be an AK47 so that's a big difference in other types of terrain right so then there's the aspect of the three block war right 
because we are a law blind military, any military with a value system, with human humanity that protect humans, there will be an aspect in high, even in high intensity combat where you'll require soldiers to do fighting the three block war, which is from General Kerlek's article that's been synonymous with the complexity of fighting in urban terrain, where you have soldiers that will be fighting on one block, peacekeeping maybe on the next block and giving out humanitarian aid and all that's mixed. And and, then, and again, Ukraine just gets all the examples, right? Where you have Ukrainian soldiers helping civilians evacuate while they're fighting two blocks over Russian forces or the, the, the rounds are impacting and the soldiers are helping the civilians because they care about the civilians. That aspect of the three block war is going to be present in any urban fight. It's the nature of urban warfare. So first one, the complexity of the three-dimensional terrain, the great equalizer. Second one, the presence of civilians and the the restrictions on the use of force that will be ever-present. Number three is the information domain, right? With the presence of modern cities, the presence of civilians, like we've seen in the last 20 years, civilians, every civilian is basically a sensor. You got a cell phone, uh, a video camera. I could watch a live feed of the city of Kiev during the Battle of Kiev. Uh, you could watch it 24-7. That, that's a new aspect, but this this aspect of the information domain is not new, right? And that was the counter argument to either urban warfare is not hard or urban warfare is the complexity or the difficult task in urban warfare have been present since you know, the Romans sacked Jerusalem, right? The messages would get back to the Senate. I actually don't care. That's not true. The, even if a problem was present in the historical studies, and his, you know, I have a lot of good friends that are historians like Dr. Jacob Stoyle, the present, the frequency, the complexity, and the impact of the information domain is more in the, today's urban terrain than it ever has been, right? So usually I show a picture, and you just can't see it for the podcast, of the first battle of Fallujah, right? So the first battle of Fallujah, the U.S. forces and U.S. Marines were ordered into the city of Fallujah, right? So this back to the question of why would I go into urban terrain? Well, all war is politics by other means. You go Militaries pursue the political objective given to them by the political leaders. After four American civilians were killed in April 2004, the U.S. population, the U.S political apparatus wanted a a operation to get the perpetrators of the attack so the u.s marines said i don't want to go we follow orders they went they executed the operation um arguably because they didn't have the right tools like heavy armor forces to go into a non-permissive urban environment where they're opposing lots of people are opposing you not just a small amount of enemy well, inside that city, as the U.S. Marines started the operation, there was a media inside the city, namely at the hospital, airing pictures of wounded civilians, non-combatant children, women, men, who had, had, who had been injured because of the combat that the U.S. Marines were approaching were aired out. And there was a global back, backlash, a global opposition to the action and the Operation was stopped within days, as in the entire provincial Iraqi government, the UK uh, political 
support, multiple political supports were falling apart because of this operation in the urban terrain. So that had a that was a impact of the information domain on strategic actions and the military operation was brought to a complete halt. But then there's but that was 2004, right? Things have changed even more, right? I also like to put out you point out usually what was the different biggest difference between the first battle of Fallujah April 2004 and the second battle of Fallujah November 2004. Well, there were a lot of differences, but one of the main first battle of Fallujah zero media embeds as in media that travel along with the military to to not to report in their favor, but just to report accurately what was going on. Second Battle of Fallujah, over 60 media embeds with the U.S. forces attacking it, right? And it, it was not an afterthought, right? You're not going to control information on the modern battlefield. But things have changed, right? So in today's battlefield, like I said, the live feed to Kiev, you know, we, there's another aspect to the General Kulak's three-block war was the strategic corporal, as in one corporal will be making a decision on the ground in urban terrain that could have strategic implications, right? And we've seen this, right? We've seen this in multiple recent wars. I would call it the strategic private today. Matter of fact, I, I say that fighting in urban terrain today with millions of cameras, millions of CCTVs that we've seen like in the war investigations of the horrible war crimes, the genocide that happened in Buka, Ukraine, and they're getting access to the CCTV cameras that can that are basically documenting the war crimes. I think that war today is more like fighting in an arena, right? Or a football stadium where everything is watched. I can write, like I said, I can watch live feeds or things get uploaded into the social media today faster than they do in any time in history, right? So even whether it's the news channel or whatever, the, the written news, the TV news, I can go to social media, Twitter, Telegram, TikTok, and see the live updates of battles happening in real time. That's going to impact the future of warfare, and especially in urban terrain, right? This is about urban terrain. And then there's this aspect of the TikTok war, right? So where militaries, like we saw in the second battle of Nagorno Karabakh, are, are messaging each other using the social media, right? Because there's three populations in a war. There always has been, and Klaus was pointed it out, there's the military fighting the war. There's the politicians setting the objectives and the strategic objectives that the military is um, seeking. And then there's the populations. And you have to, in a war, keep all three bodies. If you lose the will of any three of those, then you lose the war. You lose the ability to move forward. And we've seen that. And the TikTok war is this aspect of militaries understanding the information warfare and uploading casualty things and tweeting at each other and um, maintaining the moral high ground by use of social media and these uploads of immediate information. Um, that's the new aspect, but that's the element of the urban terrain that makes it the hardest, right? And what other environment do you have that present? You know, you could say you have the kill TV no matter where terrain is, right? Or the, the drone footage of the military vehicle being eliminated that gets uploaded in social media. And I'm talking about the sensors, right? The, the information domain that doesn't allow for this ideal of controlling information in war. It's, it's, not, it's just not going to happen. So if the first one's the physical terrain, the three-dimensional 
the underground warfare, the rooftops, the uh, TV wires, you, you name it. Um, the second one being the presence of civilian. The third one being the information domain. The fourth one is complexity, right? Urban areas are by nature complex living organisms. And complexity by definition means that if I touch it, it changes. And I don't notice, I don't know how, I can't understand all the ways it changes, right? A complicated system means I can I can figure it out what changes are happening. Most cities today are connected to the outside world. They're global cities in some way, form, or fashion. They impact the local, the regional, the national, and the global environments. So when a military operation, as soon as you insert a military force into an urban area, it starts to change it. And complexity means we don't know the second, third rule effects totally, right? So when you lock off port cities like Mariupol, Odessa, we, we know in some ways how it impacts the world economy, but actually we it's really hard for military to determine the second and third order effects of military operations or terrain. That's that complexity. So that's the fourth reason, unlike any other terrain, right? Where you can't, you just, it's so hard to determine the impacts to give political leaders the best military advice. So the fifth reason, if, if you believe in all of that, why urban warfare is the hardest form of warfare is that it requires more, more everything, right? The U.S. Army doctrine says that offensive urban operations typically require a minimum of three to five times the force ratios needed for urban combat. There's other places in doctrine where it just says you need three, time, three to five times more forces to do any mission in urban terrain than compared to rural, right? So some people translate that to the, you know, three to one is usually what a military wants if they're attacking. They want three. The, they want to have a three to one advantage to the defender. Well, in the urban terrain, you have, and based on that doctrinal statement, then you want five times that, right? Or three times what you normally would have. So you really want a six to one, a five to one, a ten to one, depending on the. You know, the mission variables and the operational variables, urban terrain. But historically, again, doctrine is made up of the lessons of history, says it. You want, you need more forces. And go back to my friend Tony King's aspect of we're smaller armies. So it's harder. You need more. You also need more or be prepared to take more casualties. So history shows that either all offense or defense in urban warfare, you take more casualties. You lose a lot lots of people in the streets and alley alleyways it's interestingly not inside the rooms where most people think but you you also lose more um not disease and non-battle injuries the urban terrain because of its natural features right that complexity of the physical terrain you're going to take more casualties it requires more ammo now it's not an urban doctor not in the u.s doctrine but it's in other military doctrine historically it takes four times the amount of ammo and that's why my friend Jason Drew says, you know, his Christmas list for the urban training was ammo, 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 water, water, water. You're just going to need more. You're going to need more supplies. You're going to need more ammo, lots more of it. And usually not the stuff that you are thinking about, like grenades, like concrete penetration, like artillery rounds, mortar rounds. You just need more of it. And lastly, it's risk, right? So all military... Operations consider risk, political risk, operational risk, tactical risk, um, 
in the doctrine, it has all these risk considerations, whether it's, you know, risk of not having enough forces, risk of losing the population support, both your population back home because of the actions that they watch on now social media or the population that of the country or city that you're in, the risk of military casualties like we talked about, the risk of unavoidable collateral damage, right? The, the whole saying from Vietnam had to destroy the city to save it, right? Those are all risks in the achievement of a political objective and in the urban terrain is just more. So another aspect to why urban warfare is so hard on the, in today, today's especially talking um, U.S. military related, in the U.S. military, it's us, right? That's one of the reasons it's so hard. It's us. So I have a bunch of quotes from chief of staffs of the armies, like General Odenero, like General Milley's famous quote in 2016 as the chief of staff of the army, where he said, we need to man, organize, train, and equip the force for operations in urban areas, highly dense urban areas. And that's a different construct. We are not organized like that right now. So that was 2016. Well, listen to this quote. The battlefield will be highly complex and almost certainly decisive in urban areas. In this world, your world, you're going to have to optimize yourself for urban combat, not rural combat. And that has huge implications. That was General Mark Milley just a few weeks ago at the West Point graduation, 2022. Well, the problem is, is that despite leaders like General Milley saying that the future is urban. We've got to change for urban. We're not organized as today. Not much has changed, right? So if you look at this spectrum of capability of development, we call it the dot mill PF, right? Doctrine, organization, training, material, leadership and education, personnel and facility. How much of that is urban? How much of that stuff can you point to in doctrine? How many doctrinal publications? Uh, we even removed one recently for the intelligence support to urban operations. It was a great manual. We deleted it. Uh, we don't have organizations for, for urban areas, right? We have, a, arguably, we have organizations for the mountains, right? The 10th Mountain Divisions. We have organizations for the jungle, 25th ID. Uh, we now have an Arctic unit. We stood up a whole Arctic division. Where's the urban? There isn't one. Training. Uh, we have a few urban courses that are within a special forces community that are about shooting and breaching the Safawak, Safar Tech. That's it, right? There's two courses. They're not even in the main army. Matter of fact, there used to be one called the Urban Mobility Breachers Course for Engineers. They closed it. So I can go on and on. Leadership and education, right? We do have, right, the one glimmering star, the 40th Infantry Division Urban Operations Planner Course happening this July. And that is amazing, but it's not funded by the big army. It's it's amazing leadership at the unit level that's decided that there's this gap, right? So that, that's why one of the reasons it's so hard, this is us, right? And I usually show a lot of it's the starting point. What is the foundation of urban operations, right? If I just talk to you through all the complexities of it, right? How hard it is to fight large-scale combat operations and urban terrain. One of the problems is us holding on to really the wrong context, right? So the inner and clear of room, Battle Drill 6, I wrote a whole paper on it, right? Room clearing may be necessary in high intensity urban combat, but it will not be four-man stacks on the outside of room that require two things, surprise, speed, 
mostly surprise and intelligence. So intelligence and speed. What do you have when you enter a high intensity urban combat? You don't have surprise, that's for sure. So you're not going to be stacking on the door. Matter of fact, historically, the doors are are your death traps, and the enemy knows you're going coming in through the door or the window. So the there's a picture that really shows the World War II inner and clear room, and I've done again in that article the evolution of the inter and clear room from inter and clear room with fire versus the the belief that you're going to stack on the room and rush in and achieve points autonomous things like that. But you know, so that's the reason. Another reason why it's so difficult is that we fail to prepare for it. If we know it's the future and our leader says it's the future, we're stuck on, you know, that because there's a reason, of course, that that inner and clear room is, is the way to the future. I and mean, like, wh- where have you seen that in, in a high intensity urban fight? You haven't, right? So the other one is the assumptions. Last one, I promise you, of the main reason, right? Back on the us is the assumptions we go into preparing for the urban environment, Right. The belief that you're going to move to the urban train unopposed, you know, basically you're going to move from the periphery, whether that's the woods or the desert, you're just going to move through all that and then you'll hit the urban train. Well, urban areas are so big that the urban environment may be the entire operating environment. The, the idea that there won't be any civilians on the urban battlefield, that's just crazy. But we oftentimes train or imagine, you know, there's just a bad guy there or we're just defending here and all the civilians left and that's just not true another assumption or maybe it's a cultural thing it's, a, it's an assumption on my list is that urban warfare is an infantry-centric fight and while infantry are very important i'm an old infantryman i'm here to tell you that urban warfare is not an infantry-centric fight it's a combined arms joint combined arms maneuver fight and that's how you succeed that was history shows the military succeed when they can combine arms in the urban terrain effectively. And that requires intelligence, engineers for mobility and counter mobility, lots of fires, aviation support. It requires all of it and it requires more of it and it requires it to work together in the most difficult location. So when we go with this cultural mindset that one, entering clear room will be the foundation of high-intensity urban combat. It will not. Or that it is just the infantry that need to go set up glass houses and work on room clearing. That's just not the nature of high-intensity urban combat. There's so many other tasks that need to be trained and combining of arms all the way down from everything to knowing how to move with a vehicle, how to protect mobile protective firepower with infantry so that it can protect and work in a strong relationship and all the intelligence you need and the massive amounts of discrete fire, all that I've talked about up to this point. Urban warfare is not, it is not an infantry-centric fight. It is an infantry-supported fight, but it's a combined arms fight. Uh, time, you know, this belief that you have the time to do the operation. Yeah, if you have the time, you can kind of reduce the great equalizer effect down, right? If you have months and months, like they did in the second battle of Fallujah, you can bring in all the power of joint combined arms, all the right formations, all the right capabilities, all the right fires, but that time may not be there. So you need to be ready. It needs to be more inherent in our operations is preparing for urban offense and defense. 
So I talked about that, the belief that you think you control the information and you can't. So another assumption that is preventing is also the, the restrictions on the use of force. That also is a double-edged sword where you see some people preparing for the urban environments like, well, I just won't, I won't have all these fires. <laughs> There's a high intensity combating as a pure competitor. You better use them a lot of fire. There's plenty of training that can be done to use discrete but lethal fires in front of the blood and treasure in urban combat. So we've seen, for some reason, a mindset of this over-restriction, right? This belief of a rules of engagement that just isn't the nature of urban combat. There is no free fire zone, like I said, but there, there's that aspect of over-restrictions. And then really the, the last one, which is hard to do within the U.S. military of, of Again, it's us. Right? This is the, that fifth variable that it's us. Is that do you think it, it that we can train for a task in any environment? It doesn't matter. So some people will tell you that the urban environment is just a condition, right? And I, I have to be prepared to do the task in any environment, right? And then you get the argument of, well, what task will I be doing in the urban environment despite history? So we had these standard essential task for brigades now, you know, conducting an attack, conducting an area defense, conducting area security, you know, it doesn't matter what environment. You know, I argue strongly that the urban environment is, since it's the hardest, maybe you agree on that task, but let's make the urban environment the starting point, right? If we know it's the hardest, and that should be our number one training venue because it is the hardest form of warfare. So that list goes on. And then again, it's one of the reasons it's hard for us to prepare for the hardest form of warfare is that it's really hard to replicate and visualize the urban environment, right? It's cost imposing to create mock cities, even though we all try. Um, we're stuck to 2D in our minds, even though it's a 3D environment, and there's many ways to visualize the urban environment. Um, and then lastly, if we can't visualize it, but we also can't practice it, um, we say at our combat training center for U.S. military, you can you can replicate about sixty percent of battle effects, but that's in the open area. I'd argue down to the urban terrain is like ten percent. Really, if you don't know the effects of your weapon system, like the fact that you have no concrete penetration weapons at your your light infantry aspects, besides you know, mortars and Gustav, that you, you know, there's these tables in the urban doctrine that show how many rounds of fifty cal you got to shoot at an eight inch concrete wall. It's like fifty. I mean, if you can't experience that effects of your weapon systems, it makes it really hard to understand the challenge or understand and actually work through real tasks for like reduce a strong point, eliminate a sniper, these things that are historical in urban battles. Well, if I can't replicate the effects of, since the lasers don't go through wood, um, they don't go through, definitely don't go through concrete, it makes it a lot harder to be this last variable. Why is it so hard? Well, it's us. So in a summary, urban warfare is the hardest form of warfare. It's the most difficult. It's the most complex. I'd argue it strongly. And those that argue that it's, that it's just as hard as all other environments, it's just hard. Hopefully, I've argued that these variables, right, the physical terrain, the presence of civilians, information domain, the complexity of the operations, and the aspects of us, right? The assumptions we bring into it make it the hardest. And the only way we reduce the difficulty of fighting urban terrain is to prepare for it. Well, thanks a lot.
Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.